The following Square and Compass interview features Sydney Oberholzer of the Setup Series podcast. She is a marketing consultant in the music industry, and her podcast discusses experiences working behind the scenes in the music industry into actionable advice anyone can use in their life, no matter the industry. And in this case, actionable advice that can be used in our Masonic lodges and Masonic temples. This week, we're very proud to have as a sponsor Al Teshuba of Platinum Realty Inc. Brokerage. The content information is located on the screen. And with that, another episode of the Square and Compass podcast. All right. Another episode of the Square and Compass podcast, this time with Sydney Oberholzer of the Set Up podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I must say, I'm very impressed by the way you pronounce my last name. So um, good job with that. Well, you're welcome. Normally, I'm the absolute worst with, with pronouncing anybody's name. So I'm happy I got yours right on the first try. Yeah. Um, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm excited about this, this podcast because one thing... Um, and this is something I think is, is just true for life, but I think is especially applicable to Freemasonry is there's always something from outside of an organization to learn and then potentially to bring into that organization. Um, I think oftentimes groups, it, it can be a business, it can be a civic group, it can be a religious organization. They have a tendency to sometimes become very insular in how they approach problems uh, or, or just how they view things. And the chance to get some insights from, in this case, somebody from the um, music industry, the, the business side of music, which is what your podcast focuses on. Um, you know, I came across you when you put up a post talking about a social media post discussing uh, networking and leveraging social media avenues. And I think that there's probably a lot of areas in which Freemasonry can learn and, and take some ideas and modify some ideas uh, from your space to our space. Absolutely. Um, and I think more than ever now, people are starting to realize that because there are no longer in-person events or when you typically, you know, thrive with seeing others face to face, I think people, you know, whether it's an organization, a brand, an event, live music, I think we all have that in common where, okay, what do you do once you, your circle is no longer near you physically? And how can you expand that? And what better way than to create an online presence that resonates with others? Um, so I absolutely agree. I think um, there's definitely some things that you can learn outside of the organization that can help and um, translate into how you can grow and moving forward. Because I think more than ever too, we have so many resources at our fingertips. Um, and that's something that I remind myself too as well. Like, you know, I ask questions, I ask myself questions, I ask like my partner questions and it, it's just, it's so much easier to find it online and there are certain ways to go about it. So yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about any anything. Um, 
I guess. Yeah, let me know. Well, let's start uh, with kind of how I, I uh, discovered discovered you and discovered this set uh, podcast, um, which deals with the um, the music industry, but particularly it seems to deal with kind of the business side of the music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I can't think of this is just from the outside looking in. Um, it, it seems like of, of in all the different industries, I can't think of anything that seems to have gone through more sudden change than the the business side or just the music industry in general. I'm 37. I remember my first cassette tape was, uh, it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the soundtrack. <laughs> Number two, because my cousin, Lisa, shout out to Lisa, she knew I loved Vanilla Ice. So she got me that for the Vanilla Ice song. <laughs> but you go from, from, you know, cassettes, just in my lifetime, to CDs, to downloading, to artists suing Napster, to streaming services to YouTube, just uh, Freemasonry um, is famous for not liking change, right? We're, we're known as very traditional, um, uh, traditional organization. And I think that's a good thing in a lot of ways, but, you know, changes comes whether you like it or not. And certainly the, mm-hmm. some would call it the intrusion or otherwise the expansion of social media in our lives, uh, you know, Freemasons aren't immune to that. So I guess from the the perspective of the music industry and the business side of it, what type of changes have there been that maybe we don't even realize and, and how, I guess, how can other groups learn from those changes? Yeah, I mean, first off, I love the parallel that you're making. Um, I think that's really interesting. I'm a fan of change. I, and I think once you start to welcome it, it won't be so hard because I think the first, the first step is like, okay, it's disrupting your life. You know, how do you adapt to it and how do you cope with it? And I think the people that adopt it early on suffer less challenges moving forward because especially when there's new technology or something, there's not as many features there's not as many things that you have to be overwhelmed with. And so you can learn as it grows, you know? Um, So, I mean, I think the obvious one is like what we're doing right now, Zoom. I think (laughs) that's kind of a learning curve in itself, um, especially when you're not acclimated to even ever touching this video conferencing. And I think it's shown too that like, it affects so many different things. We have to I mean, well, it opens up so many doors because I don't think maybe we would have met if we didn't have social media or have Zoom, um, especially with the locations that we're in. So that's like such a great factor into like even expanding. Um, but I mean, other than that, like the biggest, the biggest ones I see is it's more so a mentality change online. I, I think like, you know, there are a lot more social media platforms, maybe some of them, like I, I don't even touch some of them like TikTok, but I think there's a different type of, I think now we could really narrow it down to understanding like the type of people that use social media platforms, like they're not for everyone anymore. Um, And I think people kind of, yeah, they like kind of feel comfortable using different ones. Um, 
I mean, yeah, other than that, like, a he- I wouldn't say, another, I wouldn't say necessarily a tech change, but um, like a lifestyle change. Um, I don't know about you and like the social distancing and restrictions in your area, but here in Chicago, it's pretty strict. Um, so it it's definitely a lifestyle change. The fact that I plan around like when I'm going to the grocery store, like, you know, when I'm seeing my friends um, and I really have to think about like, you know, all, all the factors that go into it uh, based on like how I'm planning even like hanging out with people. Um, I feel like I'm going on a rant now. So <laughs> I apologize for that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the main changes are just like lifestyle mindset and, um, yeah, like you said, like taking it online and having to be okay with it, even if it's not necessarily your thing. What about, um, I I guess, what are some of the, the mistakes that you think whether it be in the music industry or otherwise, people make when they're trying to to kind of leverage online resources for networking or promotion or um, doesn't necessarily be be promotion in the sense of recruiting people to join Freemasonry or whatever. It's more promotion mm-hmm. in the sense of just trying to inform people about what a lodge is all about or what a, a temple is all about, or even just you know celebrating. Um, celebrating a milestone, like trying to promote the Windsor Masonic Temple turning yeah. 100 years old. What are some of uh, the mistakes you see people making in those areas? Well, although promotion, in a sense, you may think it's about like you and your brand. I think you have to reframe, like the biggest mistake I see is that people think that it's all about them, whether it's networking or like whatever service they're promoting or if they're trying to expand an organization, you have to think like, what is the value it can bring to whoever you're targeting? Um, And you really have to understand like your audience. Like it can't just be everyone because then you're going to overwhelm yourself. And when I mean like really understand your audience, I mean, for example, like the easiest way to do it is collecting data online or talking to your inner circle already, like what types of people are already part of the organization? Um, and what are your core values? And like, what do you want to show to maybe outsiders? And then understand like what value that brings. So if you're turning a hundred, um, what does that mean? Like, what were your accomplishments and how does that affect other people? And really just honing in on like, the values you want to bring and that insight, whatever it may be. Because at the end of the day, if no one, if no one's part of your organization now, there's a reason why they weren't. So how can you change their mindset to maybe care just a little bit to seek more information? Um, So always think like, it's not about you. It's about who you're targeting. Second, I would say, this is another huge mistake that I see like people doing all the time. And I know sometimes I want to do it because it's the easiest thing in our heads is sending a quick link um, or 
like giving up on that value proposition um, or like any additional information, description or whatever, and just sending a link in a one word because you think, oh, I could mass send this out to everyone with no context. And the biggest, the most important factor is to add that context and tie it into why you're even reaching out and getting personal with someone else. Um, because people can like, they could, they know when something is like mass, you know, mass communicated to everyone, which yes, that seems like a, like, you know, a lot of time, but it it's, it's worth it. But yeah. So I guess those two things are honestly my biggest pet peeves. And I, I know sometimes I feel like I want to do it too, because it seems easier to send out like the same message to everyone, but it's kind of a detriment to you because you're not going to get the same engagement. You're not going to get the message. And then you're going to have to spin your wheels again and mass communicate the same message that doesn't work. Um, so yeah, I would say those are the two biggest mistakes. And also last, um, thinking that every platform or channel, and this can be like outside of social media as well, that everywhere that you can communicate something um, has the same rules and the same people. I, like, I think you have to change it up based off of like the type of platform it is. If you, if you understand what I'm saying, like, you know, for example, LinkedIn is my favorite platform in the whole world, but I find that people engage and I can reach more when I'm really being like vulnerable and sharing my entire process and like oversharing basically um, for whatever reason they love it as long as you could tie it into how that can help them with whatever they're doing. Um, but that's gonna be different than maybe how I communicate the same exact idea or podcast or service um, to like a Facebook group because Facebook seems like it's more to the point, like, you know, people are there for a reason and you know what that reason is. So I guess those three things would be it if you had to walk away with takeaways from those mistakes. Those are great takeaways. I will be, I always, I put up the whole uh, interview, but then I also divide it up into clips, which I post throughout the week. So those, those three mistakes are definitely clip worthy because it's <laughs> something not just Freemasons, but I think uh, myself, uh, you know, I just make those mistakes in even outside of Freemason, just using social media in general to try to promote whatever it might be. Um, mm -hmm. And I think like, you know, on top of, I think one, one thing that I've always thought too, is like, if you provide, and I keep using the word value. So what I mean by that is like insight tips when someone's asking a question like respond with the information that they're seeking like don't respond be like you know here's my episode that describes this because like again I wouldn't always send links but I think in person like whether you're part of already a circle or an organization whether you're in person at events or outside of it online always think like it's, it should never feel like it's a small talk or like, you know, just a, like um, one back and forth. 
the best conversations, the best engagements go when you keep going. Like if, if you comment on like a Facebook group post and someone comments back, just don't leave it at that. Like keep going, like try to get more, you know what I mean? Like try to show more of yourself and like provide more and more and more. And I think people drop off at like the first comment and they're like, okay, I got what I wanted. Bye. Um, you know what I mean? So I think it's just carrying, but that's one thing that we could bring is like, who are we as humans on a one-to-one, um, like meeting or interaction at an event and how can we bring that online? We forget that sometimes. How do you, um, or, or what would you suggest for navigating, um, kind of the, the tension between trying to, uh, please what you'd imagine would be your, your target demographic or, or promoting within what you'd view as your target demographic. It, you know, I always like the expression hunt where the ducks are or fish where yeah. the fish are. The idea of, you know, f- figuring out who would like your stuff and getting it to them versus trying to expand uh, your reach. Because yeah. in theory, the, the people who might be your target demographic, they might already be aware of the, the value proposition. Mm-hmm. So it might not be necessary to go into it. Whereas trying to expand your reach, um, they may need that value proposition, especially when you're first finding them. And then yeah. if you go too far you know, out of your, your demographic, you might go past those who are interested into the you know, not so good side of social media or the, especially with Freemasonry, I mean, depending what you type into Google, you can get some interesting, interesting things popping up and your comments on YouTube videos, things like that. So I guess it seems like there's this, this very narrow road between finding and, and pleasing your demographic on one side and kind of avoiding the trolls or avoiding negativity on the other side and trying to find that group of persuadable might be the term or people who could be. Yeah. I think that's interesting um, because yeah, there can be a polarizing, um, I guess, polarizing like eyeballs and um, like, you know, the, your brand and like, you know, what you're trying to do. First and foremost, I would say you can't really avoid the trolls. You know, you could do your best to delete comments and all that, but I think like all you can do is ignore that because those who are actual your followers and believe in what you're doing are the ones that are going to stick around. You don't necessarily want the ones that see those comments and believe them because if you have, you know, not only the text, the imagery and like the brand and when I mean brand too like if someone goes to any of your online profiles and well first off they should be cohesive and consistent so you should use the same text the same wording the same like feelings that you want to invoke the same imagery of like on top of the color scheme but that's like it doesn't have to be because like you don't have to have a design eye but Mm -hmm overall like it has to be cohesive in the messaging and where I would start um, especially when you're looking to expand is 
really like who already is following you, who already more. And I wouldn't necessarily hold it to the following metrics as much because sometimes like those people just follow you for follow back. They may, they may be bots. So you never know. So I would really pay attention to the ones that are messaging you with positive feedback um, and engaging with your content. And then I would go into who are, who they are connected with, who's following them and then engage with that content. If that's someone that you think would be a great, like, you know, part of your audience. Um, I think that's probably the lowest hanging fruit because it, it's, it's not always like, I'm not saying when you have like millions of followers and they're not all your friends, but I think it shows like, you know, it gives you a little idea on there might be some connection between like people who are already part of your organization and who are their friends. So that could be like a nice way to, to start. Um, and then outside of that, there are other ways to look into other, like even expanding further, like you can, you can look up hashtags that are important to you. And then you could see who, who follows them and who's posting under that. You could even research other accounts with certain words that are meaningful to you. And it could be Masonic, it could be Freemason, it could be anything um, outside of like the actual name itself. And you can find other accounts. And I would even look at who's following them, who's liking and engaging with their content. And that could be really helpful into even understanding like outside of your lodge, like what else is out there and how can you make that connection? The, the connections that, um, I think making connections is, is something that Freemasonry, I think, used to be better at just because our numbers were so high that it was hard not to, to be well-connected, not for any, you know, particularly nefarious means, as sometimes people imply, but just, you know, when in the 1920s in, in America, one out of every 11 adult men were Freemasons. So by default, you had a lot of connections in lodges, whether it be with businesses or politicians or, or historical groups or whoever it might be. I think, you know, Freemasonry, we, we, we've, we've lost the ability to kind of grow those connections or network those connections, especially to people who might not be members, but may still have, you know, value to bring to mm -hmm. whether it be groups that are interested in heritage. I mean, most Masonic temples, the, the, especially, you know, were built between 1870 and 19, 30. So heritage groups, architectural societies, you know, it just seems like there's a lot of spaces for connections that aren't being made um, mm -hmm. in, in Freemasonry. I, from the music industry perspective, um, I've heard, you know, I, I think I must have heard a million times growing up, up through the last few years, you know, this would be the death of the music industry, especially when streaming came out. Uh, but it seems like the industry is going just fine. How did it manage to to weather some of those storms? And and was it through connections that the music industry made with with artists or different groups? Or how did it kind of weather those storms? It's interesting that you bring up streaming. Um, it actually okay, so someone's always gonna get hurt. And in that instance, I think 
Well, streaming is actually like really great to be discovered. And it's really awesome to levels of playing field for like new artists to be heard. However, I will say it does hurt the artists because they get paid pennies. And also it hurts the um, like record labels because they're no longer actually selling physical like vinyl or CDs like they used to. However, it puts more control into the hands of the artists. They don't need teams or labels or agencies or management to do any of this for them. And I think that's that's what's really cool about this change is like the industry is constantly being disrupted. And like you mentioned earlier, they're pretty, everyone's pretty accustomed to change and, and bounces back, honestly, with just, so, okay, it's really funny. Everyone I meet in the music industry has like three different jobs um, at any given point. So everyone wears so many hats. Everyone is connected to each other in a sense. I think it's different now with the pandemic, but um, so so they're able to bounce back because because each person kind of knows different aspects of the industry they're able to easily identify like new ways to create new technology um and i think that's what's really cool about the industry is that they adopt that new technology like i can't even tell you how many like new apps and platforms have been created um in fact i would actually say that music is going to be like the next big like tech industry, if you will, because everything is now being able to do it online, digitalize, like even change your voice and presets. I mean, you edit podcasts, I'm assuming. So it's like they use similar things to do that and they could add. Yeah, I don't edit anything. I'm (laughs) I'm way too lazy to edit. This is just going up. I cut out the, you know, the first five seconds when it's just blank air. And then the last, you know, after I hit stop recording, but I'm way too lazy to be editing things. Well, good for you. Uh, I'm not as confident in my abilities of being a host without editing. So I like, I'm pretty tedious with it. But um, I think like, just going back to the industry always bounces back and they always find new ways to do things. Like if there's a will, there's a way. And I will say like a lot of people are struggling all the time, but as long as they're consistent and they keep with it and they, and what I've always seen too, especially now speaking with so many people in the industry, once you make a connection, um, they like follow their gut and they like keep going and they make that really authentic connection. You know what I mean? That they believe in and they're like, I don't know. It just, Yes, there are people that use each other in the industry and they're toxic, but for the most part, like people are in it to help, not like to help others along the way. Um, And you made an interesting point earlier that I wanted to speak to regarding the fact that you understood like in the past more so um, how there were like, you know, masons in high places and in different industries or you named a couple different things. I would suggest, honestly, like if you're not already doing it, holding like networking events or workshops 
um, that are maybe where you're partnering with someone in a particular business or industry that you're looking to explore to expand the organization and um, like you know whether it's conversational or leading with education within whatever topic that might be a good way and the great thing about online events is like you can connect it to Eventbrite for free and then you can collect emails and that's an easy way to you know build your email list um, and that, and I, I don't think that's something that you could particularly do in person because people just show up normally. They're not going to give like their email, you know, to enter the event. So that could be something. Yeah. And I think that that goes to kind of the, the heart of the, one of the Masonic struggles right now is we've always had, um, this understanding in Freemasonry that that Freemasons don't recruit. It's always been kind of one of the tenets of uh, Masonic ideals is that if somebody's interested in joining, um, they should approach you as opposed to a, a Mason making mm -hmm. any type of approach. But I think that somehow it got you know there's this there's always been historically this idea that there's a difference between improper solicitation, which is recruitment or promising favors or, uh, or just, you know, making promises about the craft that aren't true or just doing different kind of underhanded ways to encourage membership versus, um, you know, promotion or, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to be connecting with the group to get them because you want membership. You can just be connecting with the group because you have something valuable to say, or you have mm -hmm. something worth showing off. Like, you know, the Windsor Masonic Temple. I think whether or not anybody joins because they see it or tour it or book it for an event, it's a valuable building that should be um, you know, promoted and shown off. And it's worth, mm -hmm. it's, worth, uh, it's worth discussing with groups who may be interested. And then that can connect you to, you know, if, when you go out and you show off the Masonic temple and then somebody has a wedding, they need a venue. So it, it kind of builds on itself, right? It's not, I think we took the idea of not recruiting to mean not talking about ourselves at all, which was never yeah. the case, right? Throughout, if you go back in the Windsor star here, um, for Masonic events were always in the newspaper because there were so many of us that it made sense to put that in. But anyways, yeah, I think that's always been my, my issue is, there's a difference between recruiting and just talking about something you love. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's where the messaging is important because, again, you don't want to always be like, like, look at me, look at me. But there's a certain way to do it where it's humble. And it you're like for that instance, like you want to show the beauty. You want to show what people have been able to do there, you know, if it's a wedding. Um, so I guess like as long as like you can share that, I would also take it in a step further and even promote like, you know, even talk about the conversations you're having in this podcast or um, the people that you're having, like you're having on it. And like what, it doesn't necessarily have to do with like what they're doing with the organization, but like, what are they doing outside? Like, what are their achievements? And again, relate it back to like what values do you want to show that will make people come to you 
um, and want to join the organization and want to like associate with you as a person and, you know, have like, you know, meet with you or whatever it may be, be at events with you. So maybe think of it that way, like outside as well, like, who are you? What do you do? And then like all these awesome people that come together, like, you know, whatever you can promote without being too salesy because that's the key like you just don't want to be too salesy you talked before about the you used the phrase right the music industry always bounces back um one of the I, i guess do you think that that is because and this is something that that freemasonry struggles with um how much of the the industry bouncing back is related to just the fact that artists and and I'm sure the executives and uh, you know there's there's the love of music that drives it versus how much of it is driven by the commercial interests like there's a um, there's a, a monetary uh, there's a financial interest in having the industry bounce back because there's a lot of money uh, at play for different groups versus how much is it, you know, people are always going to love music and play music no matter what. Um, mm-hmm. And so the industry will just find that connection of passion and talent and bring it up no matter what. The, 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 um, the commercial interest is a, an emergent property as opposed to the actual underlying cause. I, I would say more so than not, people are in it just, just for the love of music. <laughs> I say that because I I don't know exact number, but I will tell you like the more I talk with people and the more that I work with others, it becomes more apparent that it's one of those industries where like ne- like I, I'm making up the percentage, so don't hold me to it. Like ninety percent of people are probably not making anywhere near what someone in a similar role would make in another industry for the love of music. But then again, like even artists too, like they have to, they have to have like a million streams on Spotify to even make some sort of money that's somewhat livable. Um, And then again, artists is the last cut of it. You know, they have to pay off their songwriters, their producers, like anyone else. And it's really interesting in music where people who don't necessarily even make the music, they can, what they can even um, get a part of the music forever for as long as it's on, you know, in, in the world. Um, So it's very interesting. And I would say there are companies that are in it purely for the money um, as an entity, but the individuals in it are not so as much. Um, but I think those are the ones that are kind of deteriorating. Like, for example, record labels have been historically demonized because it's true, they've taken way too much and they've left the artists with like almost nothing and they would like, you know, burn them out so fast if, if they got to that star status. Um, but those are becoming more and more obsolete um, when people are starting to realize they could do things on their own. So I guess it really yeah, depends. And, and like, do you think that that will, you know, present another one of those seismic changes or, or is it already taking place, right? The fact that 
somebody can leverage YouTube, for example, or right. they don't they don't need necessarily uh, a label behind them to take advantage of uh, social media and a, and a large reach in the way that maybe in the 1980s and 1990s you kind of needed a there's only so many tapes that you could record of yourself and CDs you could print of yourself. Right now, one YouTube video, one stream, all you need is an iPhone and you upload it and you can get however many number of hits depending on how long you've done it for. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I, I think the, the idea of like a record deal is always going to be enticing to someone. Um, as much as industry has been changing, they still have that like sentiment um, because, you know, it's going to be installed in us for as long as they're around. But I, I think with the constant, well, right now, especially, um, I think it just accelerated what probably will happen in like, you know, five, 10 years across the board, no matter who you are, where, like who you work for, what industry you're in. Um, but yeah, it's definitely some, a sentiment where, where people are starting to realize that there, there's so many resources out there and there's so many free resources. And one thing that I always have to like, um, remind myself is honestly, what we can do is limitless. Um, we just have to think outside the box. Because again, bring it back to like, you know, promotion and networking, all that. We immediately think of social media, but it may not be for everyone. Um, we just have to think like a little bit harder on what we want to do and, you know, how can, like, what is out there and what can we like research um, that, may make, that may make sense for what we're trying to do. Would so you. I guess, do, do you see things maybe cycling cycling back um, just for, for the sake of, of novelty? I remember, uh, I remember hearing about people publishing or recording on vinyl um, again, which seems, I don't know if it ever stopped. I'm not, I'm not uh, I primarily get music from, from YouTube nowadays, but like you hear about um, uh, vinyl, I even heard people which I thought this would go away forever, making mixtapes again, um, which seemed like, the, you know, something that was well left in the 80s, but they're yeah. too. So do you think it's just after, you know, everything old is new again at some point and everything turns cycles back? Yeah, I think history definitely repeats itself. I think everything that ever gets created is like a new iteration of something that already existed. Um, and with that, in vinyl in particular, I think, I think you're absolutely right. That's such an inter interesting thing. And I see it all the time where, um, you know, there are trends these days that people like to get involved in. And then there are those who want to bring back things that have happened that is different because people don't do it anymore. Um, and also, I think what's a really interesting way to approach promoting is nostalgia is a powerful thing too and maybe that can play in your favor as well um maybe bring back uh concepts or 
or um, even imagery um, or like tangible items like a vinyl that will spark something in someone, um, especially if like the age range is right. You know what I mean? It could be nostalgia for someone. And then for younger people who probably never seen that, they think it's the coolest thing because they've never seen it before. Um, so I think, yeah, absolutely history repeats itself and that can be um, a tactic for you. So going back to, to thinking outside the box, which is something you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, and I touched on this a little bit, but the professional slash commercial aspect of the music industry versus the performance, the the love of the the craft, that goes to, and I speak only for myself when I say this, this is not representative of the Grand Lodge of Canada or Ontario. <laughs> it was a Masonic temple, just to make that clear. But my... And I'll, I'll see if I can put this in, in like music industry terms is the really in Freemasonry, um, there's no such thing as a professional Freemason in the way you'd have like a professional musician. Um, the, the equivalent would be like every, every Mason is in like a garage band, right? Where they might have gigs at a bar or something like that, but it's purely done as for fun or as a hobby. Um, certainly nobody in a, a garage band would expect one of the members to give up work or give up family commitments in order to, you know, make a gig or make a practice. It's understood mm -hmm. that it's the thing you do for fun. Um, but the result of that, in my opinion, is especially with all the changes since the 1950s, which was the last big Masonic boom, everything from, you know, to the, the amount of time a mason or just a man is going to have to dedicate to any type of outside events or, or hobbies when you know people are working more hours for the same uh, right. same pay two-income households family commitments are going up it just seems that to me the one benefit of you know commercial interests professional interests is it does provide um, an incentive to adapt and to adopt new things. I mean, I heard somebody once, once use the expression, we're talking about declining membership in Freemasonry. And they said, you can't compare membership in 2019. This was to, um, you know, the 1950s, that'd be like comparing CD sales in 1990 to CD sales today. But the point was the music industry didn't just go, well, CD sales are dropping, so I guess that's it for us. We'll close up our tent. Right. Like they, there was a, a commercial incentive in there for both the artists and the, the industry to try to adapt and find new, new ways to, to move forward. It seems like, you know, if music was only a hobby for everybody, well, first, you never have any professional musicians. You wouldn't have the Stones. You wouldn't have the Beatles or, you know, uh, any of those. Leonard Skinner, my favorite band. It, it just seems that there is, um, there is a protective factor in having a professional element in, in any industry, in any group. Right. I don't know what would you think about that based on your time with, in the music industry. Well, I think that's definitely an interesting concept. Uh, you're making me think a little bit, but I mean, this could just be my perspective and my opinion, but 
I think the reason why musicians are able to, well, the stars, because again, like there's millions of musicians out there that are, um, I mean, in a sense, like starving artists, like they just can't break, you know, break into what they want to do. So in a sense, it is like their hobby um, and they're working another profession for the rest of their lives. But I mean, I think it's such a tricky subject because the reason why music is making so much money is because people literally profit, like others profited off of artists and their crap for so long and it wouldn't go directly to the artists. So, I mean, I don't know, like. Is that like a distribution problem or is that a, in in the sense that. um... It's, it's, it's more so it's, it's not distribution problem. It's more so the, the middlemen. So like the people with the connections, like pretty much they say, hey, pay me a chunk of, you know, your music for the rest of your life. Um, I get a percentage of every sale of anything because I could connect you to this district. Back in the day, yes, it was like actual physical manufacturers and distributors of vinyl and CDs. Um, but then on top of that, it's the same thing with managers where a manager will come in and be like, I have connections and I can help you grow, but, um, you know, you have to give me like a percentage of, you know, however much you make with anything that you do. So that's how the music industry has always been. Like the connectors get the fees and then the musicians who actually make it get what's left over. Um, and so if somehow that could translate, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's, that's definitely an interesting concept. It, it just seems, it's like a chicken and the egg scenario. Cause um, how many, you know, it's the music industry and, and really any, anything where you have a professionalized element um, in like a significant way is, you know, full of, of, you know, heartbreaking stories of whatever it might be of, of, you know, people sacrificing, you know, living in their cars or, or doing whatever it is they do to try to get to that professional level. You know, mm-hmm. the vast majority obviously don't and aren't able to, but some do. And, and I guess I've always struggled with this idea of in Freemasonry, just because this is what I love. Um, yeah. You know, it's one thing to, to do something purely out of, out of monetary means, which I don't think is healthy in any circumstance. Right. But there's another thing to do something because you love it, but have some type of infrastructure present that if you're good enough or lucky enough or endure long enough or some combination of the above, it can kind of find you and, and suck you into it. And it might not be the, the fairest structure, but it will, you know, it does. I mean, I guess my, what do you think the music industry would be if, you know, the Beatles only played high school gyms or like there was never any concerts or any, any professional touring musicians. It was all yeah. at the bars. Um, well, when and you that's, find the time. that's actually what I was going to say. I think 
once money is involved, you have more of an investment and a stake and you feel like in some, in some certain, in some certain circumstances, especially in music, um, you know, like if I had money at stake, I'd be more invested in this artist and I'd want them to succeed more um, because, you know, that's the whole reason why I would be around as a manager or label or whatever. I'm giving them resources that they could have never gotten. Like to your point, the Beatles, they may have not had the money to be at the status and get the exposure that they got. And that's a great, that's a great point and a great example because, you know, that's actually what like the agencies or the labels that they worked at, that's the whole point. They offer that to get as big as they were. And um, to your point, when it comes to Freemasonry is like, yeah, if, if money was involved, that'd be great because then it would give you the resources um, and someone who's like full time into like, you know, making it grow. Um, and, and as of right now, if it's, if it's like, you know, an organization that's not professional in any sense and you have an outside job, like just think of your time too, like you're devoted to something else because it provides for you, your family, whatever, to make a living. But then you have something you love that is not giving you like an income per se. It pays you and, you know, other means, mindset, friends, connections, what have you. But it's it's a balance. Like, and it, it, if you only had one, then you could definitely devote more time into it to help it grow. But just the reality is it is like, you know, there's only one of you. So I think that would be like a major difference is like, if your organization had that, it would help like just probably expand it quicker. Yes, that is what I think too. But good luck with that ever happen. But maybe one day I can convince them. I, and I think that that's what the, this is a, a years and years you know, a long process, but that is, you know, one thing that the, the uh, social media sphere can theoretically provide uh, in, a, in a monetization sense. I mean, it's not a, a create, it's, it's, we talked about before, everything old is new again, you know, in the 1920s, when Freemasonry was so large um, in both the United States and Canada, there was a gentleman from New York, I can't think of his name now, but he became a millionaire by publishing a Masonic newsletter. But wow. because, because there were so many Masons, especially in New York, I mean, the Grand Lodge of New York is an incredible building that, you know, businesses, whether they were Masonic or otherwise, had an interest in advertising in it because there were just so many Masons that would shop in the cities or whatever it is. So it's not a, a it's just a really old idea. The problem is, you know, the audience back then in the 1920s, you had about 10% of your population that was automatically an, an audience. Right. Now it's significantly less. But, you know, to me, a, a podcast can be similar to a newspaper in that sense, right? You can have advertisements, you can have subscribers, everybody please subscribe to this podcast and the setup podcast. You can have all of those things. And that's, you know, one possibility in terms of monetization. And you can have Mason's you know, doing it and interviewing people and traveling once we can travel again. I don't know. That's just mm -hmm. my thought on it. Yeah. I mean, and podcasting is so interesting because it's so multi 
multifaceted in my opinion. Like, I mean, yes, it's a great core um, means of communication and education and however entertaining um, in a sense, like a newsletter, but you can also reformat it too, to text. Um, you can even like, like you're about to do, make clips. So it's really great because there's so many different things you can do with the podcast. But also what I love about podcasting too, that you can't necessarily get with like a newsletter in the 1920s is that like people can reach out to you and they can build, they have that connection with the host um, of podcasts that you can't get anywhere else. I mean, that's why I love it. I feel like there's more of that one-to-one um, direct to consumer than anywhere else. Um, so, I mean, I definitely think it's a great way to, you know, spread um, the message that, you know, not only with other Masons, but also like, you know, whoever's listening. Speaking of sponsors, I just went, I just mentioned those a second ago. So I do, I'm going to thank him now, uh, Al Tashub of Platinum Realty Brokerage. Um, sponsored this podcast and I'll throw his um, I'll throw his card up um, at the uh, start of this video it'll be there and then also at the end so thank you so much Al Shuba, for sponsoring the podcast see how I did that was a good segue quite happy with that <laughs> uh, do you um, I gotta ask because I miss traveling so so much and you mentioned that um, you're in Chicago which is absolutely one of my most favorite cities in the world i've been there a bunch and i love it so much have you had the chance to check out any of the we might have not known it the masonic landmarks in the the city like um oriental theater down in the the loop yeah um so i mean i used to pass that all the time because right by the like you know state street big shopping area um, but yeah, that whole area is beautiful. And I would say the loop is probably has some of the oldest um, buildings in the city. So that does not surprise me. Yeah, the Oriental uh, Theater it was originally uh, a Masonic temple. It was one of the, mm -hmm. it was, I think it was the biggest in the world until Detroit took over that uh, biggest, largest Masonic temple. But yeah, if you look on the That's facade of, of Oriental, um, I think it's on like the second or third floors. You can still see on the front, the square and compass symbols. They didn't get rid of them. And then uh, Jefferson Lodge down on the, or um, no, it's the lodge. Oriental Lodge now is down on, um, by the blue line. Uh, Jefferson That does not help. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, maybe, um, yeah, maybe that makes sense. I'm trying to think where that is, but yeah i'm pretty sure it's the the jefferson park stop if i got that one correctly but yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's definitely a stop so you're on the right track so you're probably right my favorite movie well not my, one of my favorite movies growing up was adventures in babysitting with elizabeth yes. shoe which takes place so the first time i went to chicago i was just so happy to be riding on a subway like or on the l it just anywhere just because of that famous movie scene but how are things in Chicago? I know you mentioned at the start that there's pretty strict lockdown orders right now, but um, I'm hoping well, I can visit there again soon because I love that city. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm assuming the majority of the times that you have been here was when the weather was actually nice, because I would say it's probably not as worth it if um, it's like, cause I, I mean, I mean, you understand like you're even further up North, but here with the lake effect, um, it's not like nice snow at, like really it's, it's like just bone chilling and um, usually like slush or ice. Um, and right now it's actually decent. Um, the weather is all right. I mean, it's had an overcast for a week or so, but in regards to, you know, everything that's going on with the pandemic, yeah, things are pretty much shut down um, other than like grocery stores. Their restaurants are still really trying to stay open with outdoor seating which is absolutely absurd to me. Uh, I'm not gonna be eating outside anytime soon. I'd rather do takeout or, or delivery. But other than that, yeah, there's, there's really not much to do. I'm pretty conservative when it comes to social distancing. So I barely do things or see friends or family, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, they're, they're pretty strict here. How about, how about where you're at? Yeah, we just, um, so uh, Windsor, Ontario, Ontario just entered into a lockdown on December 26th. Um, in Windsor, it's going to remain locked down for 28 days, and then they'll see after that. Um, so, I mean, lockdown, right, it's obviously, you know, uh, grocery stores are still open, um, pharmacies are still open, a lot of restaurants are moving to takeout. Uh, which we were not quite as brave as, as the Chicagoans. We're not, um, actually, what, Chicago, what is the? <laughs> yeah, Chicagoans. <laughs> we're not quite as brave as the Chicagoans. We don't have a lot of uh, outside dining. We did during the summer, obviously. Um, but a lot of restaurants are doing takeout. And we've got a, a thing in Windsor where uh, takeout Tuesdays, where the mayor uh, and, and city staff are encouraging everybody to order takeout at least once a week to help the restaurants. Yeah, and it's it, everybody is you know just kind of getting by as as best they can. Um, and you know, I, I actually did a, a podcast episode or, or a, a brief clip about um, Freemasonry in nineteen eighteen through nineteen twenty uh, during the Spanish flu pandemic and. You know, the city made it through that and we made it through that. So I'm sure we'll, we'll make it through this too. But Absolutely. It's obviously. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say it's, it's obviously challenging for a lot of, in a lot of different ways, but yeah. we're making it through. Yeah. And that's, see, that's an excellent example of some great content that's relatable and helps us like push forward um, because like you said, like it's happened, you know, similar situation has happened before and we could push forward but um also I it just clicked right now but you were just over the border from Detroit like you could probably see Detroit if you're in like a tall building um is it a fairly small city or like we're, we're about Chicago? Two, yeah we're, so we're 200 and um I mean almost every city in Canada would be small compared to Chicago or any kind of larger city in in the states. Uh, Windsor's two hundred and twenty one thousand, if I do recall correctly. Um, wow. So yeah, we're a lot of people back in the day when when you could cross the border uh, easily. A, a lot of 
people from Detroit said, you know, Windsor felt like a suburb that was just harder to get into than, <laughs> than, a, than a, an actual different country. And then there used to be so much traffic. I used to love Chicago, obviously, but just crossing to Detroit to grab dinner or whatever it is. Um, there's still some border crossings for people who work mm. in the States, especially nurses and stuff who may work at hospitals in the States. But yeah, it's definitely strange seeing so much less traffic uh, crossing the, the bridge or going through the tunnel or anything like that. So, but definitely Chicago is on my list of places when I can travel again. I, uh, I've been there in winter a few times. It's been interesting. It's, I mean, I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, though, which is like above Minneapolis. Yeah. So I, I managed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still have never been to Canada and I really, really want to. And actually what I was going to tell you is one of my best friends married someone who's from Windsor. Like his family still lives there. Where, so that's a, I'm, I'm sure he's a wonderful, terrific person. Wonderful, terrific <laughs> man. I'm terrific. Everybody from Windsor is. is. Yeah, no, he is. He's a great person. So, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, that's this has been a fun reminiscing about Chicago and and all the places we can't go anymore, but hope to one day. Yes, hopefully sometime soon. Uh, knock on wood, sooner, <laughs> sooner rather than later. But yes. tell me about um, you know, I came I came across you through social media with your connection to the setup podcast. I've really enjoyed the episodes I've had the chance to, to listen to so far. Um, even though I love music, I can't, I can't perform any music to save my life. And I love business, but my bank account would say otherwise. But even though I, I, you know, I still enjoy the topics in the podcast. So tell me a bit about, or tell the people about, about the setup podcast, where they can find it, all that stuff. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time to talk about it. Um, so the setup podcast, it, it's been changing a little bit, um, but essentially it is the purpose of it is to help those who are trying to navigate the industry. Um, right now we are featuring women entrepreneurs in music, um, which is really inspiring and empowering because there's such a small percentage compared to men. Um, and then next season, we're actually talking about music marketing and promotion. Um, so that's really exciting, but yeah, I just started it off of the idea because when I was breaking into the industry, I could not find any resources. I couldn't even, like I mentioned earlier, I couldn't find anyone that I was meeting in person online. And that just blew my mind. I'm like, how the heck are you working with these like really cool artists and doing all these insane things? And I cannot find you anywhere. So after it taking, you know, like as long as it did for me to break into the industry, I was just, um, I just wanted to provide a resource to those who were in my position that I was at the time. Um, and so, yeah, the topics are all across the board and it's really just helping those artists who are looking to, um, you know, excel and grow their career or music professionals who want to help artists and want to learn about the roles that they're interested in. And you can find it at thesetupseries.com or and the then, setup series on all major social platforms. Uh, I guess whether it be 
due to the pandemic or, or changing? I guess this is a, a good good place to, to leave it. Just m- moving forward in the music industry in general, what are some things that you're, or what are you most excited about moving forward? Uh, live events again. <laughs> I was just I mean, thinking I mean, that after I, as the, <laughs> as the question was, was coming out of my mouth, that was like, I think I know the answer. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, more than that, I, I know live events will come back. I just really hope that they have guidelines and have parameters in place that make everyone feel comfortable because like I said, like I'm very conservative. So I know live events will come back, but I just hope that I'm ready for it and that they um, keep creating new ways to make sure that it's not as unsanitary as it was in the past. Because I think of all the things that I had to do, like, you know, porta potties without hand sanitizer or like being like sardines in the crowd. That's so crazy to me. I cannot fathom that being a thing anytime soon again. So I'm just really excited for just like the constant innovation and um, like having the extra parameters to make sure that they actually adhere to health guidelines. How would that affect? I'm just thinking out loud the 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 income side of it all. Like if yeah. if, if uh, stadiums are running at say uh, 25% capacity to make sure they can properly socially distance. Um, I mean, they make it up in the back end somehow, or do the stadiums just pay the difference? Well, um, a lot of the sales come from food and beverage anyways. I think that probably will cause some issues. I know, um, like over the summer and into the fall, there have been a lot of like sectioned off, like you had to I mean, as of right now, like I think music's at like a standstill unless it's live streams or virtual reality or something like that. But um, yeah, in the summer and fall, they had um, they had drive-ins, which is like I said, history repeats itself. Like brought brought it back because they had to, or outdoor events where they can control section off like areas where you and your friends can stay and then they would just hand deliver food so that people aren't walking back and forth and then making sure the food is covered completely so that you know if someone had COVID they won't like cough on your food or something um so I could see that being a thing but I think um that is a huge topic still like I don't think anyone really knows how to handle big arenas or even small venues um, it's difficult, but I know just like, it's just, they had to create something new. So a lot of them are time slots or, um, you, yeah, are completely sectioned off and they have to limit the capacity. And I think the limited capacity is going to be something for a long time and they're just going to have to figure out a way, uh, because frankly, I don't think that music fans are going to pay for like double the cost that they used to because prices were already crazy at arena at arena is like if you think about the floor seats they were already like three hundred dollars and just just thinking nobody really wants to it'd be it'd be strange socially distancing especially at a, a depending on the type of concert like yeah like dave Chappelle obviously puts on socially distanced um 
comedy shows, but those people can sit like, you're not, you know, in, in any type of concert. I mean, no more mosh pits, no more. It's no more dancing, weird. nothing like that. Well, I, so the first drive and I, I went to where it was completely sectioned off and I'm not even kidding. It was like six to eight feet. Like it felt really comfortable and it was outdoors and like they made us wear masks the whole time unless that you were eating or drinking you had to go in your car for that um so that was really awesome but yeah it took me a while to realize like no one's surrounding me so in my head I thought like oh I'm the focus so people can see me dance I'm not in a crowd anymore but at the end of the day people are just there for the music they're not like looking around so people once you get out of your head like people are acting normal again but yeah it's definitely weird at first like the fact that you're not surrounded by anyone well I'm a terrible dancer so I support the ban on <laughs> dancing just because I can't do it but thank you so much this was uh I really enjoyed this interview and and having somebody from outside of Freemasonry but having such valuable insights that can be applied to Freemasonry and us I think to a lot of civic groups because we're all even before the pandemic, um, you know, all these, all these kind of civic groups, the Rotary Clubs, the Elks, Freemasonry, they were churches. They were all kind of experiencing challenges related to engagement and retention. And so, and networking and all that. So I appreciate the insights. And I think they will be of value to a lot of Masonic lodges and Masonic temples. Well, thank you so much, Cameron. I, it, the pleasure is all mine. If you ever need help with anything, you know, any more insights outside of this, like, I would love to be a resource. And um, yeah, I just really appreciate being on this. Thank you so much. Please, uh, everybody watching, go to the Setup Podcast and subscribe, follow it on all the socials. Same thing with the Square and Compass Podcast. The, the, it's down there somewhere, the, the red subscribe button, hit that, all that good stuff. And thank you so much. Thank you. See you.